ASN Kenny Week 2014 in Philadelphia showcased 27 late-breaking clinical trials covering areas including autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, diabetic nephropathy, and acute kidney injury. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Dr. Linda Sezik of Fibrogen, Inc. and Dr. Pradeep Kadambi of the University of Arizona College of Medicine discuss several of the studies presented at the High Impact Clinical Trials Plenary Session at Kidney Week and their potential to change how kidney health professionals approach their practice. Dr. Sezik, will the Hall PKDA trial change clinical practice in terms of strict BP control for patients with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease? Now, that's a very interesting question, and actually one that was asked at the late-breaking trial session on Saturday. And the authors were a little bit wary to say yes. They um, suggested that it was up to the individual interpretation of the practicing clinician and the patients that they were treating, but they came back and reaffirmed the exciting results that the lower blood pressure did actually affect total kidney volume. And is that a marker of goodness to be Mm -hmm. derived? So uh, an interesting question, and I think that no definitive answer can be given, but given the safety data and the potential for efficacy, it should probably be considered um, strongly on a patient level. Sure. Now, let me come back at you and ask Dr. Kadambi about the Advance On trial. What do you think about Advance On in terms of reducing the incidence of new end-stage renal disease patients? Yeah, I mean, as you know, the Advance On study is an extension of the Advance trial, And the advanced trial looked uh, at intensive glucose control in type 2 diabetics. And this study targeted hemoglobin A1C of uh, less than 6.5% and its eventual effect on end-stage kidney disease. The advanced on trial had about 8,500 patients. And these patients were from the original advanced trial. And they participated in a post-trial follow-up for a median of 5.4 years. It also has to be noted that the in-trial differences of uh, hemoglobin A1C disappeared during their first post-trial visit. That is, you know, patients were generally asked to do what they used to, how to manage their blood sugars. But the amazing thing is that the benefits of intense glucose control during the advanced trial persisted even after nearly 10 years of follow-up as it pertains to the decrease in end-stage kidney disease. And there was a a total of uh, 46% reduction in the incidence. And also it turns out that greater benefits were achieved in patients who had an estimated GFR of more than 60 uh, compared to those with lower levels of kidney function. And patients who had reduction in end-stage kidney disease with higher GFR was 71% as opposed to patients with lower levels of kidney function, which was at 11%. And also good blood pressure control, especially in those patients with systolic blood pressure of less than 140, played a significant part. So what we can conclude from this trial is to reiterate what we already know. That is, we need to aggressively treat the known risk factors for kidney disease, namely diabetes and hypertension, perhaps at much earlier stages of uh, chronic kidney disease. I don't think this trial is going to decrease the incidence of chronic kidney disease, but it will definitely help us in slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease in our patients. So were you surprised about the results of uh, the HALT-PKD B trial showing that ACE inhibition was more effective than dual 
ACE inhibition and uh, angiotensin receptor blockade. What do you think about that? Well, I'm going to take a step back and actually with your first question, I realized that I didn't really describe the HALT studies for the people that are listening to this podcast. The HALT studies looked at people with adult polycystic kidney disease and randomized them in a two-by-two manner. Now, the patients who had GFRs greater than, I believe it was 60 as a cutoff, got randomized to both blood pressure arms as well as different uh, antihypertensive treatment arms. And as we were talking about in the first question that you asked me about the different blood pressure goals, it was the lower blood pressure goal, of course, that um, resulted in a decrease in increase in total kidney volume. Isn't that cute? A decrease in the total increase of total <laughs> kidney volume. Now, the one that we're talking about now, the HALT-B trial, looked at the two randomization arms of either an ACE inhibitor alone or an ACE inhibitor plus an ARB on progression of kidney disease. And I, I guess I frankly wasn't surprised personally that there was really no significant difference. I think that we have been very interested for a long time in really maximizing the effect of the renin-angiotensin axis in how we inhibit that and look at the progression of kidney disease. And we've had so many trials that demonstrate an increased uh, safety risk when you add an ARB to an ACE without any real benefit. And that has happened in both kidney disease as well as in acute left ventricular heart failure, the Valiant studies, and in other populations of people with heart disease who arguably probably have a significant amount of kidney disease anyway. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, for the people listening to this podcast, there was no safety signal which is nice, but there also was no benefit with the HALT-B trials in that the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, or pardon me, the ACE inhibitors arm and then the ACE inhibitor ARB arm were relatively indistinguishable in terms of the progression of kidney disease. So it would have been lovely, um, but unfortunately it doesn't represent a, a therapeutic option for this particular group. Now, I was very excited to hear about the the positive trial in the late-breaking clinical trial session, and I'm um, a little jealous that you get to talk about it, Dr. Kadambi. So why don't you tell us about the rescue trial and about instant restenosis? How common are these, and what do you think about the results of the uh, rescue trial in maintaining vascular access as we move forward? Dr. Sezik, thank you for this question. So as you know, adequate vascular access is the Achilles heel for our dialysis patients. And once these accesses, uh, either a Navy fistula or a Navy graft, develops stenosis, the primary patency, even after an angioplasty, is really not that great at six months. So the rescue trial was a multi-center, randomized, concurrently controlled trial and they used a fluency plus endovascular stent in the study for the treatment of instant restenosis. So basically, this study looked at two issues, whether this stent is safe and whether it's effective compared to uh, PTA alone. So what the authors found 
was that the stent graft group had an, a higher overall primary patency rate of the AV axis compared to the PTA group alone. And this was uh, 16.7% for the stent graft group and about 3% for the PTA alone group. And also the post-intervention lesion patency, which they defined in the study as the interval from the index intervention to the next re-intervention, was also better at six months. That was 65% in the stent graft group compared to 10.4% in the PTA group. And also when they looked at safety between the procedures, there was really no uh, difference. So what we can take away potentially from the study is that it would be better to use an endovascular stent graft to improve both the primary patency and the post-intervention lesion patency in the treatment of instant restenosis of dialysis axis. And we also know from uh, many of the cardiovascular trials that stent restenosis has been a big issue. And I think uh, the cardiologists are uh, perhaps, you know, pretty ahead of us, uh, and they've used... Um, the drug eluding stents to keep the access and the to keep the coronaries patent. So I don't know, like you know, maybe down the road uh, we might look at some studies looking at drug eluding stents as well in this group of patients. That would be very interesting. I think the balance between bleeding and patency is one the cardiologists have dealt with, and I know that we'll probably have to deal with it too. Absolutely. At some point, I think we might be going through uh, this phase as well as nephrologists. I, I want to like draw your attention to, again, uh, one of the trials that was discussed, which already has been published this week. So how could the POIS trials affect preoperative preparations for cardiac surgery and help reduce AKI incidence? What are your thoughts on it? Well, so let me describe the trial for the people listening to the podcast first. And then I'll address my question, or your question, because I think that the question is is really about disease awareness at this point, unfortunately. I think that's probably about all we can do. So the POISE trial was a gargantuan effort. 10,000 patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery that were screened, and a total, I think, of about 7,000 were randomized to preoperative interventions of either aspirin and placebo or clonidine and placebo. And the choice of those therapies is based on the pathway by which a hemodynamic insult can go on to result in acute kidney injury. And the desire here was to see if we could somehow alter the clinical course, the incidence of the outcomes for acute kidney injury in the um, perioperative state. Now, unfortunately, in spite of a very well-done trial, very well-designed and large with lots of power, neither intervention, either aspirin or clonidine, seemed to alter the risk of acute kidney injury, the severity, the duration, et cetera. So I guess the lessons learned are, First of all, it can be done, and it can be done on a large scale. These are notoriously hard trials to do, but I would encourage anyone who has a potential therapy listening to this podcast to think big and, and learn from what these investigators were able to do that this can be done on a very large scale that would provide powerful evidence of efficacy. The second point, though, is I think that as much attention as we can draw to this amongst our subspecialist colleagues, the better. Because even small amounts of changes in creatinine 
postoperatively correlate with bad outcomes, correlate with increased risk of morbidity and mortality. So it's not just the aneuric acute kidney injury on 24-hour dialysis patient that does poorly. Even small changes do correlate with, with an increased risk. So anything that we can do to draw attention to acute kidney injury, as well as pre-existing chronic kidney disease, which is, of course, a risk factor for acute kidney injury, is going to be a good thing so that we could help our colleagues to do a little preemptive, supportive therapy, a little greater care to drug dosing, a little bit greater care to watching volume status. And that in and of itself would be a, a very good outcome. What do you think of still using our um, old friend creatinine as a marker for acute kidney injury? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think that's probably, so that's a, a great question. I, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why acute kidney injury is relatively unrecognized. Obviously, the nephrologists listening to this podcast know very well that it's not the absolute creatinine, but the rate of rise and the trajectory and a whole host of things that predicts what is going to happen to ap actual kidney function. But the art of understanding where the signal is coming from and not the bobble that we see in just the clinical variations, particularly someone who's post-op with lots of volume shifts, is really the one of the, the reasons that we're seeing much, uh, we're, we're not seeing the early recognition that would be so beneficial to patients. So we, as I think everyone who listens, and hopefully everyone who's listening is smiling and nodding right now, um, are probably in violent agreement that we definitely need a better biomarker for kidney function, one that really reflects actual kidney function in real time and reflects the change in kidney function that people are experiencing on a, a, a more instantaneous level. If we can make it, if we can reduce the art back to a science, we can make it very easy for people to care for our patients, and that's really what we all want. Absolutely. I completely yeah. agree with you. And then lastly, gosh, speaking of, you know, a kind of a, a, a difficult area to talk about with multiple trials, the active trial. What are your thoughts about how to take these findings and utilize them after the trial has been completed? What type of patients do you think would benefit from extended weekly dialysis given the findings in the active dialysis multinational trial? So as you know, that there has been a push in the past decade or so to consider more dialysis sessions per week as it has shown to be more beneficial to patients. The current trial of extended weekly hemodialysis on quality of life and clinical outcomes had participants from different continents. There were participants from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and China. So this study used a standardized survey instrument to measure the quality of life over a 12-month period in patients who are targeted to receive extended, which they defined as more than 24 hours per week, or standard, which was 12 to 15 hours per week of dialysis. So despite the fact that patients on external treatment had higher hemoglobin levels, lower phosphorus, and lower potassium levels at follow-up, the quality of life did not show a difference. So we know that our own kidneys, they work tirelessly for 168 hours a week, 
which is nothing but 24 bar 7. So that's how many hours we have in a week to maintain the fluid and electrolyte balance. So hence I think, you know, in my opinion, the patients who might benefit the most from extended dialysis might be those who have a hard time maintaining fluid balance. They have difficulty controlling their blood pressure or even intradialytic weight gain or who may have trouble controlling their phosphorus or potassium. However, in this study, it seemed that extending dialysis time did not affect the quality of life. So if you think of our own dialysis patients, their life revolves around dialysis. So again, um, the study didn't really show much of a difference in terms of quality, but I think that extending dialysis time might perhaps be perceived by the patients as not improving the quality of life. And again, you know, these are just my thoughts. I do not know eventually how this is going to play out. But at least uh, some of the objective measures that we could measure uh, definitely were improved from this trial. So we'll have to see as to how this is going to play out. It's an interesting topic, isn't it? I, You know, I look back to some of the pioneering work in the early 90s that demonstrated the relationship between urea reduction ratio and mortality. And mm-hmm. that was done in tens of thousands of patients in observational studies. Yes. Um, so I've always wondered if one of the issues is just the number, the technical difficulty of showing quality of life benefit in um, a chronically and critically ill population and the number of patients we need to get there. That's it probably true because the, uh, this trial had only about 230 patients or so. So if we had looked at, you know, perhaps a 1,000 patients, the outcome might have been different. I, I, I do not know, but uh, that's definitely a possibility. Well, uh, the one thing that I think that we'll both agree on is that we have to remind our colleagues that we can never stop innovating because while we're improving morbidity and mortality every year, we've still got a long way to go. Absolutely. So, Pradeep, it has been a pleasure talking with you and summarizing the late-breaking clinical trial sessions for the ASM. Linda, uh, I want to thank you again for giving me an opportunity to talk about these trials with you. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.